but I really think that my experiences with athletics are just kind of getting out there and doing something until you can, and just like doing it badly until you do it well, um, really like shaped a lot of the ways that I approach these new things like, oh, I want to do this thing. Well, I know I'm going to suck at it at first because mm -hmm. that's kind of how it goes. And then you just keep doing it until you are are legit. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has her PhD in interdisciplinary ecology. Uh, she's worked several different postdoctoral fellowships. Um, recently, she finished a year with ProPublica Local Reporting Network, and she's working as a journalist. And currently, she's working as a freelance journalist. Welcome to the show, Joan Miners. Hi, thanks for having me. Joan will, and for everybody listening, um, Joan, I don't know if she just has a soft voice or a soft microphone, so we'll just have to like kind of work with her microphone as we get going. Um, yeah. So that's just how it goes sometimes with technology, though, right? Um, so I kind of want to jump right in. You, I think I read that you basically have grown up being both interested in journalism and the environment. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about like how those things kind of got going in your life and how they continue? Yeah. Um, so I always liked writing um, and I always liked science and ecology. And I sort of, I think originally I thought I had to pick one. Um, and so I kind of picked science because it seemed like the research path was a little more clear cut. Um, and I went down that path for a long time. I did my master's, did my PhD. I had a variety of field jobs. Um, you know, I, I had all these crazy jobs where I had to like get up at six in the morning, go mountain bike and collect beetles, or I had to go to work and go jump in the ocean, catch stingrays and stuff like that. Um, okay. Like, my, my path has had a lot of interesting, weird jobs. Um, but I ended up at the place in my PhD where I really felt like, what is the point of all this if, uh, if nobody knows about it, if we're not communicating the results to the general public, if people aren't aware? So I ended up studying bees. And, you know, one of the motivations behind studying bees is to solve the problems that we're currently experiencing with bees but I really kind of felt like all of my efforts were being wasted if I didn't make sure that the information that I was learning got to the public because mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily going to get there otherwise. And so that kind of led me into, well, if you want something done, sometimes you got to do it yourself. Um, I'm going to write about my research. And then that was really fun and rewarding. And so then I thought maybe I'll write about other people's research too. And that kind of led me into the journalism path. And it was a passion project and I just kept doing more and more of it kind of neglecting my research a little bit until finally I was a full-time journalist and wasn't doing research anymore so so I mean okay so explain that to me where it's like uh, you, so you have your PhD in a completely different field you didn't go to school at all for journalism or kind of more of a traditional path right I I don't have a degree in journalism. I took courses in journalism while I was doing my PhD. You know, I'd kind of be like sneaking out of the lab, like <laughs> my journalism class, you know, 
tell me when I'm taking, I like have extra homework in journalism. Um, and then I ended up actually TAing the journalism class and doing some lectures on statistics for journalists. So um, a little bit of formal education, but, but all kind of during my science PhD program. Okay. And it's just, it's kind of the, the approaches people take, especially um, people like you that are in what we could probably say are two pretty disparate fields. You know, <laughs> um, just kind of how you get going. And I always feel like creativity, the ability to th like think outside the box, think outside of just like, I, I can't be a journalist because I don't have a degree in journalism or whatever, just figuring out, well, this is what I want to do. So what do I need to learn to get there, whether I go to school or not? Like, like that skill, that creative skill is so essential, especially now. Um, and just the kind of crazy job market we have in kind of moving you forward to, towards your goals. So I, I think it's pretty cool to see people like you doing it instead of just talking about it. Yeah, it was definitely scary at first, you know, the first couple of times I emailed people and said, I would like to interview you about your research. I was like, oh my gosh, who am I to even ask these people for their time? I'm just a random grad student um, and I'm emailing these, you know, prominent researchers and saying like, can I talk to you on the phone for 10 minutes? Um, mm -hmm. But then, you know, and I never introduced myself as a journalist. I was kind of like, I'm a person who wants to write about your research because um, I didn't totally feel comfortable using um, that, that word for myself. But mm -hmm. um, I think it just, it was the confidence slowly developed just like anything else. And um I think I think actually, I know we're going to transition to talking about about athletics more later. But I really think that my experiences with athletics and just kind of getting out there and doing something until you can, and just like doing it badly until you do it well, um, really like shaped a lot of the ways that I approach these mm -hmm. new things. Like, oh, I want to do this thing. Well, I know I'm going to suck at it at first because mm -hmm. that's kind of how it goes. And then you just keep doing it until you are are legit. Right. I, I mean, I kind of think about it like um, anytime I talk to somebody who's like, oh, I wish I could do whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. And it's like, well, do you really want to do that? Yeah, but I'm not very good. Well, yeah, because you haven't done it. So like, it's like embrace the suck, embrace how bad you're going to be. And then realize that slowly you will become less bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think it, I, you kind of experienced a similar thing that I have too. Like I had a lot of trepidation starting the podcast because I'm like, you know, it's kind of almost a catch 22 where it's like you feel like, well, nobody's going to want to talk to me because I don't have much of an audience. But you can't have an audience unless you talk to people. Yeah. So you got to start somewhere. And I, I kind of cheated a little bit. I started with my coach and, and some people I knew – um, that fit well and branched out from there. But I definitely have experienced where it's like, I'll speak to like well-known professors and authors and people send me their books and I'll go through the books and we'll talk about the book, things that are coming out and people you wouldn't think that you could approach. I've been more than happy to just say, Hey, I'll, I'll spend an hour with you just chatting. Like that's perfectly fine. It's, it's kind of nice to see people aren't as scary as you think they are. <laughs> Definitely. I don't, and I don't think that's cheating at all what you did. Um, 
I mean, yeah, you start with what you know better. Like I started by writing about my own research. And then the first time I wrote a freelance article, it was um, about some research being done by another grad student in my program. So that kind of felt like cheating. I felt like, well, I didn't really find this person in maybe the way that you're supposed to find someone that, you know, you write about just kind of venturing out beyond your own sphere a little bit more. Uh, but it worked out really well. And yeah, start with what you're comfortable with, like baby steps. And um, that article that I was just kind of writing for fun to see if I could if I could pass as a real journalist, um, they actually paid me for it, almost $500. And I didn't, <laughs> I would have done it for free, but I didn't know they were going to pay me for it. <laughs> and they're like, okay, where do we send the check? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, so well, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, because I'm a real journalist. You are going to pay me, obviously. <laughs> I do this every day. This is perfectly, this is like fake it till you make it thing. Exactly, yeah. So we, we can actually jump into this. We'll, we'll come back to the, the research. You're talking about athletics. Um, I got a little bit of a background from Joe and that you're um, in cycling and you have a sponsor, at least one sponsor that works with you. Um, are you What discipline of cycling are you actively involved in? So I'm not racing right now. I had a really bad crash a few years ago and I haven't. Um, and then I was like in the middle of finishing my PhD. So I'm not racing right now. Um, I had to kind of take a step back from it. Mm-hmm. But, um, I used to race for a team out of uh, northern Utah and Idaho called Harrison Sun Valley. Um, and we were sponsored by Chick-fil-A for a little while. Actually, during the whole Chick-fil-A fiasco where they, where they didn't support, where the CEO came out and said he didn't support LGBTQ, uh, mm. And that was a little bit awkward. I actually went and got some, I don't want to get too political here, but I just went, I actually, when all that was happening, I'm like racing around in this jersey that says Chick-fil-A all over it. And Mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable with that. Um, I still wanted to race. So I went and bought rainbow ribbon and kind of like adorned my jersey with it and put it in my hair and stuff. Um, Not thinking about the fact, this is, I'm totally making myself, fun of myself right now not thinking about the fact that um rainbow stripes on the sleeve in cycling mean that you're a world champion yeah right and it's not exactly the rainbow colors but it's right because there's black in there but it's close enough and white it's close enough that it could be mistaken for that and so mm. I'm rainbow like ribbon all over my jersey to distinguish myself as you know lgbtq friendly and people are like oh like you're just giving yourself like world champion stripes <laughs> Bad. <laughs> what have I done? Um, so yeah, I raced um, road mostly, uh, and then I got into um, endurance mountain bike racing. So like cross country, uh, like marathon events, um, you know, fifty miles or longer on a cross country mountain bike course. Uh, I did that all through my masters. Um, I. Speaking of kind of just jumping into things and faking it till you make it, I did a a fat bike race in the snow. Um, and I think my fifth race or something was the national championships in Ogden okay. uh, at Powder Mountain in 2016. Um, and that was that was really fun. Um, I got fifth, 
so it worked out uh, as far as my expectations for that, that point in time. Um, I've kind of been all over the place. I think that my credentials are probably not as much, like, as uh, I haven't been as successful as some of the other people you've, you've um, interviewed on this podcast, but I've kind of skipped around a lot to different sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ran in college. Um, I ran the steeplechase, uh, which was, again, one of those. My coach said, hey, you want to do the steeplechase? And I said, okay, sure, put me in. Right, because never- no, nobody wants to race the steeplechase. That's how I – well, I did it. I did it because nobody else wanted to run it. That was me, too. <laughs> That's awesome. That was me, too. Um, he put me in the 10K, and I hated it. The 10K mm. on the track was a terrible thing. Um, in my opinion, <laughs> you got to embrace it. I'm getting ready to do one, uh, here in a couple months back on the track. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to do great for me, <laughs> for me. 25 laps at my absolute red line limit was just like, no, thank you. I'm more of a, I was more interested in doing kind of the middle distance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, you know, coach, what do I have to do to never run the 10 K on the track again? And he said, chase. I said, okay, put me in. Um, but, uh, and then in, so that was college. Then um, I actually dislocated my hip in college and started cycling to rehab. And then that's how I got into cycling. Um, and then I got into backcountry skiing and actually started like ski mountaineering racing in Utah as well. So, yeah, you have been all over the place. A little bit of a grab bag in terms of my athletic background as well as my professional background. <laughs> So I have to back up because this is any, – anytime I talk to somebody who's done the steeplechase, and I've only talked to one other person on the podcast so far, Ben Yoakum, who's a decathlete, uh-huh. and he ended up – if you haven't listened to that episode, listen to that episode. The steeplechase story comes on relatively early in that that episode. But Ben's a great storyteller, and he talked about – he did it because nobody else – not enough people were in the race. So he could just go do it, and as long as he finished, he would get points for his team. And that basically helped them win the meet. Uh-huh. But I always ask anybody who's done the steeplechase, how was the first time doing it? Uh, the first time actually was probably really relatively great for me, like time-wise and I had a great time. Okay. Because I think I had no expectations. Like I mm-hmm. didn't have time in my mind. I didn't have a place that I wanted to do. I was just kind of doing this ridiculous race um, for fun. And there's actually- Built for horses. Right, exactly. I'm like, I'm a horse in this race. Um, right. And <laughs> um, there's there's pictures of me from that race where I'm like smiling and like waving at my friends. Cause I'm like, this is, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, this is a really crazy random race. And actually I have another crazy story about that specific race, which is that, you know, I was, I was kind of nervous. I was warming up for it. I was just going to take it as a fun thing, but you know, you still get nervous sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I hear my name over the loudspeaker. This was at Bowdoin college in Maine. I hear my name over the loudspeaker. I go up to the tent. I'm like, what do they want? You know, I'm trying to stretch and stuff. And, and the coach of the other team is like, come with me. And I'm like, this is weird. And he walks up the bleachers and he um, like says, follow me. He walks up to the bleachers to these three women that are sitting in the very back of the stadium with like a hat on and sunglasses and stuff. And he goes, Joan, this is meet Joan. 
and it was Joan Benoit Samuelson. And she's the she's she won the first women's Olympic marathon. Okay. In 1984, and I'm named after her. And so, and she lives in Bowdoin, where this race was taking place. Uh They had invited, my coach had told the coach of the hosting team, like, why don't you see if Joan Wright Samuelson will come to this race? Because I I have a runner who's named after her. And she did, and we chatted. And she, so she, this, you know, Olympic gold medalist, who I'm named after because my dad was a marathoner, mm. came to watch the very first time I ran the steeplechase. <laughs> so mortifying. I'm like, she's like, oh, so running today. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> For the first time, I'm so sorry. Please don't watch me. Um, <laughs> but it, she was really nice and it was really exciting to have her there, even though I didn't know what I was doing in the race. <laughs> I feel like, I, I feel like that's a moment best reserved for after the race right yeah in case it just made me super i think it it kind of energized me it did make me nervous but it also kind of energized me um i actually ended up breaking the school record that day so okay i think it it worked in my favor yeah that was a gamble right like of the coach right (laughs) right well it wasn't the thing is it wasn't your coach that took you up there right yeah exactly exactly (laughs) like a sabotage (laughs) That's why I'm like, he doesn't, you know, it, obviously we just met, obviously, but like, if you spend enough time with your athletes, like you get a kind of a sense about what energizes them, what makes them nervous. The other coach has no idea. I assume, I assume you haven't spent a significant amount of time with them. So that seems like a. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I always assumed that my coach knew about the timing and was totally okay with it, but it was the other coach that walked me up there and introduced mm-hmm. me. So yeah, I don't know. Now you're making me rethink like the timing of this and whether like, <laughs> how well it was thought out. <laughs> well, I mean, we know how it turned out. So it it was you were apparently fine. I don't have a namesake like that, but I know if I know if I did, I would probably be like I'm going to have a terrible day now. Like <laughs> just yeah. just a little too much pressure. I was definitely nervous, but I was kind of, I kind of went flying over those hurdles and I'm sure my form was atrocious, but you know, I was having a great time. So <laughs> it worked out. So is, is that, since, since your dad was in a marathoner and you have somebody you were named after that's like so iconic, um, I'm terrible about knowing who anybody is in, in running. I just paid attention to myself most of the time. Um, <laughs> is that, I mean, is that something you thought about like during your career? Like, I should be as good as she is or I should like channel her power or like anything like that? Uh, not a lot. Um, I mean, I was never like even close to being maybe I, like I should be as good as she is. She, right. She runs ridiculously fast um, and won the, the Olympic marathon in Los Angeles against all odds. And it was like a really hot day and she trains in Maine. So she just has an incredible story. And I was never really comparing myself to her in that way. Uh, But it was, it was fun to have, you know, to get into running and to feel like I had that backstory. And I have a, my parents, when I was born, they sent um, her a letter telling her that they had named me after her and um, they had met her a couple times at like events or something, 
and she sent back a signed picture and then that was hanging in my room when I was growing up and so it was cool to have her to look up to but I never expected to just walk up the bleachers and meet her right before my race and you know she was like next time you're in town you should come over for dinner and I was like okay uh, <laughs> I have a picture of you in my room since I was a baby like it's crazy um but yeah, I didn't really ever feel any pressure um, doing that. I actually, <laughs> to get more into my uh, like random history of sports, I actually played softball and swam in college in uh, high school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that since my dad was a really fast runner, and I, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and you know you go running on the trails there or on the bike path, and you just get passed, no mm-hmm. matter who you are. You just get past because you're because it's like Olympians training right next to you doing their speed work on the bike path while you're doing, you know, you're trying to train for half marathon or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I because of that, I didn't really think of myself as as a serious runner. I just thought like, oh, this is what I do for fun. And then um, I kind of tried out for the team in college on a whim and like went became a serious runner from there. But but yeah, I, I had no I had no designs on becoming the next John Laurent Samuelson. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like that kind of speaks to kind of like what we were talking about earlier, just like with um, the podcast or, or journalism where you you meet people. And I think the way our culture is, it's almost like we make icons out of, you know, Olympians and, and, and athletes and um now, now comedians i i watch a ton of stand-up comedy so then there's you know these people that are essentially icons as these big entertainment acts musicians um, all these very talented people and i'm sure there are not so nice people in those groups as well but there are not so nice people not in those groups i feel like in general people just seem to be people like they're not I don't know that I've personally met anybody of Olympic stature, not that I've met a ton, um, but a few that that are like all about themselves. You know, they're just like, oh yeah, if like if you love the sport that I love, I'm happy to talk to you or help you or whatever. It, it's not like, oh, you're not good enough. You're a peon. Like, get out of here. <laughs> You're totally right. You always think that that's kind of what we expect to happen. Like, oh, but I am a peon. Like, they'd be totally right to tell me to get out of here. Um, but yeah, my experiences meeting kind of my sports icons have been similar. Uh, I, I was recently at a journalism conference and an investigative journalism conference in Houston. And I look across the room and I saw Mara Abbott. I don't know if you know who she is. She got fourth at in Rio at for the women's cycling road race. She's like an amazing, amazing um, climber on a road bike. Um, And she's also from Boulder. And we went to like rival high schools around the same time. Mm -hmm. And I was, I knew who she was. And I I wrote to my friend, I was like on a piece of paper, I was like, that's Mark Abbott, like like Olympics fourth place, like over (laughs) there. And then, and he was like, go talk to her. And I was like, no, I can't. And, but he made me and she's super nice. And, was just like there because she also is interested in journalism and we have a ton mm-hmm. of content and we like chat on Twitter sometimes. So yeah, people are just people and they're, they're nice and they got into it for the same reasons and everybody started somewhere. So. 
Yeah. Sometimes I think that that idea that that person is like unapproachable almost speaks more to, at least for me, um, my own like insecurities than it does the actual person themselves, you know? You don't know anything about them, really. Most right. of the time, you just kind of follow them as a fan. Right. You're just like, they're really fast. Like, by default, they have they want nothing to do with me. We have nothing in common. And then they're like, oh, no, like, I'll talk to you. That's fine. Yeah. And then it's really weird when the tables turn and, and people come up to you and they're like, oh, I watched you race or whatever. And you're like, wait. <laughs> yeah, right i actually had i kind of had that experience a little bit i just um i was i just finished filming a commercial uh for the company with my friend brian who i ran with in college he's now a teacher at one of the local schools and this past summer i had my first ever uh race win overall race win not a very big race there was like 100 people there but it was big for me because I've been racing for almost 20 years. I've never won. <laughs> so I was happy about that. And I went on with my life. Well, so I shoot this commercial with Brian. And then he goes back to work. And I had given him some product um, that we used in the commercial. I said, take that home. And there's another guy that I'm not familiar with that he works with who knew me from winning that race. <laughs> It was like, oh, yeah, I know him. Like, let him know if he needs somebody to trade with. I'll like, it's just like, what? Like, I just, I I won a small race. Like, I'm not anybody important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I used to live in a small town in North Carolina on the beach. This is where I had that job I mentioned earlier where mm-hmm. I, my job was to, like, go catch stingrays and stuff mm-hmm. for coastal ecology research. And I had to do a lot of random beach stuff for that job. And I was running, I ran a lot when I lived there and they had like this beach run series. Um, and I would go do that and do well usually. And I was at the gym one time and some random person comes up to me and this was the first time this has happened to me. So I was very, I was like shocked. He random person comes up to me and says, Oh, I saw you race last week at the beach. Like you did really well. And um i was like oh my gosh people know who i am they're gonna see me running on the street what if they see when i have to like duck into the bushes you know <laughs> like, <laughs> like oh god i'm not anonymous anymore this is bad <laughs> you know the, the it's like it's almost nice like you said nice and bad at the same time but like even i often talk about this lady barb Linquist, who is um one of the first all say superstars. Um, she would probably hate me saying that in triathlon for the U S she was the first woman to be ranked number one in the world. And, um, so she was in the Olympics in 2004. I was fortunate, although not quite fast enough. Somehow she allowed me to be a part of this group that she coached trying to get college athletes and turn them into professionals. And I remember the very first national championship I was at, she was like, showing me how to use um, elastic tubing to warm up for the swim because it was too cold to get in the water. As she walked away, some guy came up to me and was like, is that Barbara Lindquist? And I'm like, yeah, it is. But it's like, so like she's this huge person and people know who she is, but at the same time, she doesn't like get accosted when she goes to races. You know what I mean? 
Like it's just like kind of like kind of like you with Mara, just whispering in the corner, like <laughs> over there. <laughs> yeah, because you don't want to bother them. Like if you really look up to someone, you don't want to pester them. I think most people don't. Some people do, maybe. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll jump back because you've got a lot going on with kind of what you're doing now, what you've done with your journalism. Um, as kind of a general question, I like to ask this, especially, I think it's especially pertinent for you. Cause like you said, when we got going, it's like, if nobody hears about what you're doing, then are you really making an impact? And that's part of what I like about talking to people like you is that there are some people that are deeply engrossed in research and then have really no way to present it to the public. You obviously get bigger platforms than talking to me, but you know, you understand kind of the importance of it. So what I always have trouble with, um, sometimes personally, but just in general, I, trying to advise this is how do you sort um, bad science from good science, bad research from good research and kind of dealing with all the sensationalized headlines it, to distill that down to like what's really happening, what's important to focus on? good question so usually if something is really seems like something you've never heard before and it's just groundbreaking and totally unimaginable it's it's maybe suspicious like you should be suspicious of it most science happens in very small increments like you make a big discovery but really if you're not in that field, it doesn't seem big. It's, it seems just very incrementally different from the last thing you heard about coming out of that field. And that's kind of how science should progress most of the time. So you want to be suspect of those like break, huge breakthroughs where it seems like somebody did something that's unlike anything you've ever heard anybody doing anything before. And that doesn't mean that it's, you know, bad science but it means that you should talk to a lot of people about it before you write about it and you should ask for you know a second opinion from and you should always do that like I always try it when I'm writing a story about science it's it's good form to get an outside opinion so somebody that didn't work on the story um maybe a rival in that field there's a lot of like rivalries within science and um like either personal or ideological rivalries. So somebody believes this is how the world works. And there's this other group that's like, it's definitely not how it works. This is how it works. And so if you're going to write about a breakthrough on one of those sides, you want to talk to the other side and just get their opinion. You don't, as a journalist, you don't have to take a side, um, but you should represent all the sides. And I think that's the best way as a journalist to do it as a, as a reader, um, you know, you want to read from multiple sources. If there's something big that happened in science, there's going to be multiple outlets that report on it. And so reading from multiple outlets and everything is, is a good way to kind of, if you're suspicious of something, is a good way to figure out what's up. Usually if, if NPR and the Washington Post and um, Reuters and whatever all I'll write about kind of a similar thing. You can usually believe that it's real because, um, you know, most of those journalists will have done their homework. Uh, but if 
if only one outlet seems to have the big scoop on something, um, then you want to be a little suspicious of that. Yeah, I think that kind of plays into some psychology for us. Not necessarily everybody, but I know I've been, um, what do I say, subject to this mentality at one time or another where it's like, uh, not for like a story or journalism in particular, but just the idea that I'm a part of this select group that understands this one thing that is so revolutionary and everybody else just doesn't understand. So that makes me special. I think that psychology sometimes is tough to get over. And part of the reason that these kind of, uh, I'll say partisan, that's not really the word I want, but, um, these very biased, you know, agenda driven, I'll call them news outlets. Um, although that's, I think a little more than they deserve. It exists now because it allows people to be part of this like narrow channel where it's like, no, we understand the truth and we are getting all the information and we have it right. And everybody else is just crazy. So that's part of my kind of interest in figuring out, you know, how do we exist in this fake news era? Uh, Dave Chappelle refers to it as the age of spin. I like that moniker. Um, but I think part of it, too, is I, I look at the the kind of economic side of it from, say, the paper standpoint. Well, they need to sell papers. And if you as a journalist just came out and said, here's the facts and figures, that's a very boring article to read. So then it's like your job is to make it more interesting for me to read, but also to present the facts. And then I think when you – don't have journalistic integrity, it can become spin or spun to the point where it's no longer really accurate anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So I like to think of the science nuggets of my journalism as kind of the vitamins and I have to wrap them in like they're the nutrients and I have to, you know, they're the, your vegetables or whatever. And I have to wrap them in like more appealing, delicious stuff to get you to get the nutrients like into your body. I don't know if I'm taking this metaphor too far, but it's um, fine. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I always try to write something that I think science is just inherently fascinating. So I could write a whole piece that's just like, let me tell you about this crazy thing that happens in chemistry. And then I'll turn it into my editor and my editor will be like, nobody's going to read this. Like nobody. And we have to take out 90% of it and then tell a story that um, is about more fluffy stuff that people will want to read. Um, and usually they're right. And I, I'm like, okay, I just got carried away with that, with that science part of it. Um, but it just, it's like a different way of looking at it. And um, science is a story because it's done by people. There's highs and lows, there's wins and losses. I mean, it's, it's just like a sports story. Like you fail and you fail and you fail and you're bad at science. And then finally you get the experiment right and, and something goes well and you figure out something and then you get to move forward to the next thing and like get to triumph. And if you think of science as a story like that, I think you can 
you can pull people in and you can teach them something and you can um, kind of gain trust with your audience. But there is a lot of leveraging facts and science for political kind of agendas like you're talking about with the spin. And I've seen, I've heard multiple stories about people, they're usually talking about their parents, that their parents only watch Fox News or something. Mm-hmm. Parents only watch MSNBC on the other end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And they have all of these kind of radicalized ideas because they're only consuming their information from one source. Right. And I have at least one friend who said she just changed the channel and their parents started having a little bit more balanced opinions about things. <laughs> and that kind of, which is scary, right? But that kind of goes back to the point of try to consume all of, get all of your information from a variety of sources. Don't get it from one source. And then, you know, my, (laughs) so I used to come home from, from school and tell my dad some fact that I learned, like we'd be sitting around the dinner table and my dad would be like, what did you learn in school today? And I'd, I'd tell him, oh, did you know that like, it's possible. I was going to try to make something up, but I don't know. Just some crazy fact that, did you know that it's possible to like recreate a dinosaur or something? And my dad would be like, what middle schooler did you hear that from? Like, just <laughs> like I don't believe you. Cite your sources. Mm-hmm. Who are you talking to? What do they know? What's their background? And so those are the right questions to ask. And I guess I had that drilled into me from a kid <laughs> right i was like it sounds like you were being trained to be like <laughs> an accurate journalist from the time you were young even though you didn't know it yeah to like question everything that everyone tells me like well how do you know that <laughs> where what tell me how you know that but yeah that's, that's that's what everyone should do when they get new information assume that it comes from some crazy middle schooler until you can figure out otherwise I, the tough part of that is getting people to do that with themselves (laughs) where it's like this is what i believe and it's like but why do i believe and then you start going down this rabbit hole and you're like who am i really and then you have existential crises which i have probably monthly um so i i don't know that that's i don't know if that's a better or worse plane of existence i don't know like which one is more seen i guess because because I'm kind of like that. I have a lot of, like, what do I really know is true? Like, what is one thing I'm totally sure is true? And sometimes I have a hard time coming up with, you know, well, I think this because I think this because I think this. But is anything, like, undeniably true? And I'm a scientist, so um, you would think that I would have more answers to those questions. But it can once you really, like, drill down to it, it can be existential like you said you start really questioning everything and i think you should do that but it can you can drive yourself a little batty trying yeah a little bit batty (laughs) i mean i think sometimes i think when you have a conversation with somebody of a differing opinion which i think you should have it, it can become tough because you're coming from two different bases of reality and i mean that in the sense that like Say, say you're the two people in this conversation, one believe God is God exists, and the other one believes that God doesn't exist. 
Well, the way you view reality is in two different places. So depending on the topic, what you believe is possible can differ entirely. So you may not even be able to find common ground in a certain conversation. And the, you know, there's a, other conversations like, hey, what do you want to have for dinner that have nothing to do with those ideologies? It's perfectly fine. But I think about that sometimes, too, where it's like, OK, we're trying to have a conversation. We're trying to find common ground. What's the base fact that you're coming from with this conversation? Like I, I often talk to people about since I'm in business or an entrepreneur and I, I do stuff like that. I often talk about money. People have certain ideas about money or where money comes from or what it does or like rich people. Are they good or bad? And those things that those like behind the scenes um, biases sometimes, you know, force us to an impasse where we just can't find common ground because we're not even coming from the same place. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're totally right. And our, our country is a really good example of that right now. Many places in the world are, many places in the world are really polarized right now with their beliefs about things. But I think no matter how little you have in common when you're trying to have that conversation with someone, you can still ask yourself and ask each other if you're open-minded about it. Like, well, why do I believe this? Number one. And number two, what are, like, is it important? Why is it important to me that I believe this? So, and is it, why does it matter that I believe this? So sometimes it's okay to believe something just because you want to believe it. Like if, if you want to believe in a spiritual uh, like structure that you can't totally justify scientifically, you can't drill down to exactly why you believe in it, you just do. But it provides you community and it provides you with um, this faith-based way of living your life. I think that's okay. Um, you don't have to scientifically justify every single thing that you believe. Mm. Uh, but I think it is useful to recognize, well, other people believe different things and that's okay too for them as long as, you know, the impacts on other people aren't, you know, are minimal and recognizing kind of the way that your belief system impacts others. Right. Yeah. I, I think I'm like, you're kind of touching on it and this is my personal philosophy well it's not my philosophy but it's something i subscribe to is like um something we learned early on uh as freshmen in college about john stuart mill and utilitarianism and the harm principle basically is do whatever you want to do as long as you're not hurting anybody else and i kind of combine that with um I, I have this philosophy i subscribe to that's basically if you give value first like you know, value will return to you. Um, I can't prove that, but it is functionally useful to believe it. Whether it's true or not, it helps me progress forward, and I'm not doing any harm to anybody. I'm actually trying to provide help to other people. So I kind of think about both that first part and then the second part, not necessarily in, in saying everybody has to believe that aspect of value but just there are frameworks like you said like a spiritual framework or a philosophical framework where it's like maybe it's not true 
but it's useful and that's okay yeah and and that's <laughs> that's kind of what we say about scientific models too right so a scientific model isn't it's it's useful in that it represents something that's real but it's not itself real like you're and it's just like like a drawing if I draw you an elephant on my wall right here, like that's not an elephant, it's a model of an elephant, but it's, it's, so it's not real, but it's useful if I'm trying to explain to you what an elephant is. So yeah, there's like ideas that, there's ways of expressing yourself or ways of subscribing to things that aren't like scientifically real that are still totally useful and and there's also different like levels of what how what you do doesn't impact other people and does or doesn't you know some people would say that harm is if you you're not doing anyone else any harm if you don't strike them or something right. and then other people believe that if you're not vegan then you're doing great harm to everyone around you right. and there's all these different like layers of the the thing so I mean but that's what makes people interesting and complicated and and you know our society is so diverse and there's so many different opinions but that's why we're that's why there's so many interesting stories to tell mm-hmm. um before we run out of time I this I'm I'm jumping here where is this <laughs> but you, you talked about, um, I think this was for your dissertation work, but correct me, when you were tracking the bee populations, mm-hmm. h- how do you do that? This is a per- just a personal curiosity, because I'm like, how do you track 50,000 bees? Like, um, One at a time. So I had, it was just me and a, and a field technician that I had with me to help me do my work, and it was just the two of us for two different five-month flowering seasons in the field. And we literally just walked around the field, um, timed our movements through a habitat, and caught any bee that we saw, usually one at a time with a net. And then after two years, we had caught 52,000 bees and identified them and, um, and characterized the habitats that they came from and written down what flowers they were visiting and just amassed this huge data set that we can use to understand uh, why there are a lot of bees in some habitats, why there aren't very many bees in other habitats, kind of how they're sharing resources, um, what's what's a good area for bee biodiversity, what kind of, like if you're going to build a parking lot and you have five different habitats to choose from, what's going to be the least impactful to, to the bee population? Like those kinds of, the data set that we amassed is able to answer those kind of questions. But yeah, it is very slow, <laughs> um, laborious process. And that's why they have grad students do it. You don't see like <laughs> out there um, catching bees one at a time very often. <laughs> so is that like a catch and release or is that like a catch and you keep it and catalog it? Unfortunately, it's the, it's the latter. Okay. So yeah, we, but they all go into a curated museum collection and they're mm-hmm. used by lots of, that data is used by lots of different projects and the specimen are kept and they're used by lots of students to learn how to identify bees and there is a reference collection and um, I worked in one of the largest native bee museums in the world it's housed at Utah State University 
Mm. And they have, uh, I think, getting close to 2 million pinned specimen in the lab. So 2 million bees that are like on a pin with a little mm. label and barcode in a glass drawer. And the glass drawers slid into like the stacks, basically like a library and roll the, roll the stacks over. And yeah, it, I mean, it's an amazing thing, I think. <laughs> and it, it's just a wealth of knowledge that is accumulated like one bee at a time. It, it seems like a lot of work to accumulate 52,000 bees, let alone <laughs> millions of bees. And then, and then at some point I'm like, when is enough bees enough bees? Like, is there a point where they say, we don't need any more bees, like, we're good? Um, I mean, I reached that point personally. I was like, <laughs> I don't ever want to see another bee. I just want to, like, understand my data that I already have. But there would be a point at which you have too many bees from one location. But there's so many locations in the world that we still don't know anything about the bees that live there. And we're not gonna know how the bees are, the bee biodiversity is changing, what species are being lost, how the overall numbers of bees are, you know, increasing, decreasing, staying the same. We're not gonna know that unless we have multiple samples in time from the same location. So there's, there's an effort right now that's just recognizing, and this was part of the work that I did in grad school, is just, um, I did a literature review to see how many places actually had been thoroughly surveyed for bees in the U.S. in natural habitats, and there were only 23 places. Some of them are in national parks, some are in BLM, some are in protected areas, but like unaltered habitats where we actually know what's going on with the bees, there's there's only a handful of places. And so when we're when we're trying to figure out if native bee species like solitary bee species are declining the same way that uh honey that we know that honeybees are we have relatively few data points and we really need a lot more information which means more bees out there collecting with nets <laughs> yep. um as we're running out of time uh i have a you get to be the first person for season two here of the podcast so i've changed my kind of ending question i used to ask people about recovery food if you listen through the whole of the other episodes this year i'm not asking people about that okay um i decided to be a little more esoteric which is very characteristic of me um and i am curious on your opinion of what the purpose of sport is i would say confidence in yourself i would say that that's the number one thing i gained from from sport is learning that if I ask something from my body and I give it what it needs to do that and I prepare adequately, like I can expect, you know, incremental results and that gives you confidence for every other thing that you want to do in life. That's a great answer. It's a great, great way to start off the year. <laughs> um, Joan, if people want to find you, can I keep up? with what you're doing with your journalism, maybe hire you. Um, see here, B Research, where can they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter. My handle is B Cycles. So that's B-E-E -E, and then cycle like a bike wheel, plural. Um, and I also have a website that's just my name.com. So J-O-A-N, that's M-E-I-N-E-R-S.com. Uh, 
mom and I love to hear from people. So I always am looking for new stories to tell and stuff. So yeah, it was great to talk to you. Thanks yeah. For <laughs> Thanks for spending some time with me today, Joan. Yeah. Thank you.